0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon and first of all, happy new year. I hope 2021 is a great year for everyone. Stay safe and healthy. And today we are actually gonna talk about a new book that's out called Tortured Logic, why some Americans support the use of torture in Counterterrorism." And I'm very, very happy to have both of the authors on the show to talk about this book. So first of all, please welcome Aaron Kearns and Joe Young to the LoopCast. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And for our listeners, Aaron is an assistant professor in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Alabama, while Joseph is a professor at American University with joint appointments in the School of Public Affairs and the School of International Service. Why don't we start off talking about what inspired you to write this book? What was it that you needed to do research on this topic? Because it is, it is a heavy sh- topic, to be completely honest. Yeah, I think that
1: both, uh, both Joe and I are uh, familiar with heavy topics. The original sort of idea for the project that led to this book uh, was something that Joe had pitched to me I want to say first year, maybe early second year when I was a PhD student, so 2013 or so. Um, And his, you know, the question that he had in mind came from Brigadier General Patrick Finnegan, who in um, 2007 had traveled to Hollywood to try to convince the producers of the TV show 24 to stop showing torture always working for fear that that was um, influencing how troops in theater in Iraq and Afghanistan were viewing interrogations, how they were behaving. And his suggestion was to show torture not working sometimes. And this is something that Joe had a question about, thinking, you know, does or do media depictions of torture working versus not working actually influence views or not? And I came with a background um, in experimental research. So it was sort of a, a natural, um, I guess, marriage of sorts to go ahead and test that. And that served as the first study, which then just kind of led to more and more and more questions. Um, And the process to actually write the book was a bit of a slow one. I think we first talked about maybe writing a book around 2015, 2016, didn't actually decide to do it until 2017 or so. And now it's out.
0: what sort of methods did you use? Because there's a lot going on in this book. It's it's really, really interesting. And I think it's a very important topic to discuss and consider and also policy recommendations. But what what were the methods that you used to do this study?
2: Well, first of all, Chelsea, let me thank you for having us on here and just give you a, a um, deep Sense of gratitude. I've been a long time listener of Loopcast, and I'm really, uh, you know, I, I've listened to every episode. So I'm, it's going to be a little bit surreal when I listen to us on the on this great <laughs> podcast. So um, thanks, thanks for having us on it. Um, and so I'll talk about the methods that we used, and in, in, there are really two large classes that we uh, used. One was. Uh, as Aaron was describing, we did a series of experiments to try and get at our questions, and and I'll go through some of those different types of experiments. But then the second one we did was really interviews, uh, and I'll and I'll talk a little bit more about those as well. But the first, like I was saying, we used experiments, and primarily we used experiments um, to look at the causal effect of the various treatments that we wanna we wanted to examine on why people support torture or don't. Um, you know we we had a whole in, in most survey experiments, and these are all mainly survey experiments. um, Most survey experiments, the treatment is actually the information you're providing the person that's, um, that's the subject of the experiment. And so we did um, you know various kinds of ways of thinking about the information that they would receive that 's different um, in the first one that we did. we did a convenient sample on college students because we had college students readily available to us uh, and and we found some pretty interesting results uh, and that's that was kind of the basis of the first paper that that came out of the project but then we we wanted to examine this in terms of a more nationally representative sample there are all kinds of problems with just using college students. We know college students aren't that representative. Um, they tend to be younger. They tend to be more liberal, et cetera. Um, so we did similar experiments on a nationally representative sample of, uh, in the U S um, using Qualtrics and other, other software. But um, we re- we wanted also to get a sample of just the intelligence community, or we were in conversations with the military about doing a, uh, an experiment with um intelligence officers or, or um, military intelligence. Um, those got somewhere, but at the end, it became too complicated with our IRB, their IRB. Um, and so we didn't, we didn't actually get to have that sample, but we do have in some of our experiments an, a national representative sample. And then we also did a, a kind of novel type of experiment, which is called a conjoint, which Aaron was the um, uh, mastermind behind the conjoint experiments, which At the time when we started doing them, were were pretty novel. They weren't used very often in criminology and political science, but now, and not not because of us necessarily, but because I think they're just much more widely adopted across um, political science, especially. But but you see them occasionally in crim as well. And the logic behind the conjoint is you can give people a whole lot of different options, and we can test a whole lot of different um, particular values of these. independent variables that we might be interested in and in one kind of uh, sitting. And so they're, they're pretty powerful experiments. And we, they allowed us to test things like uh, if you get information from uh, a Senator versus a um, a Supreme court justice versus a, a Republican Congress person, is that going to change your belief, whether torture is um, effective or not. And as well as it um, all sorts of other, other factors that we, we examined. And so those were the kind of experimental uh, uh, methods that we use but then in the interviews we primarily talked to experts in the field and we talked to about a dozen experts and I won't name all of them but just to identify a couple um, Mark Fallon and Steve Kleiman um, and we also talked to Tom Parker and Liz Arsenault all uh, everyone we talked to was amazing but those folks in particular really gave us good insight onto um examining the causal mechanisms that we we're identifying why people you know are going to be more or less supportive of torture and especially thinking through what the experts think about um the efficacy of torture and and how we can change people's minds on it um uh Mark Fallon especially is was a big impact on us and he's also been a huge supporter and and lover of the book so we're we're definitely grateful to him especially
0: so I mean I guess what we can do now is really uncover this big question of why do some Americans support torture and also enhanced interrogations. I think a lot of the times you think of torture without any scientific basis, but this concept of it, it's like an eye for an eye and so forth. But why don't we discuss, let's, let's tease out what you found in your studies of where the support comes from and how it takes place and happens.
2: Yeah, uh, that's that's the big question, right? And and um, first, I think we should just address the fact that we were concerned initially when we started the project that people would see torture and enhanced interrogation as different concepts, and that they might confuse um, torture and enhanced interrogations, and and, um, we would get different results if we asked these different words. But we did a lot of um, pilots, which showed that people consider those things the same. So it didn't really matter to us whether we called it torture or enhanced interrogation, the results kind of held. Um, But the basic idea or our basic idea is we borrow from kind of evolutionary theory and and identify kind of an evolutionary mechanism, which suggests that, you know, under threat, groups are gonna hunker down and they're gonna protect their group. And so if your group is met with a violent challenge, um, that the reasonable response is to meet that violence with violence, Um, both as a, what you were saying, Chelsea, about having an eye for an eye, but also as a kind of deterrence to ensure the safety, security and survival of your particular group. So it's not, you know, one of the the things that worried us is that it might be that people are just stimulated by, by violence and um and you know violence kind of act, uh, makes people feel like a violence is the right response, but it's not really just about violence. you know we we also expose people to violent uh images of people fighting just kind of in fisticuffs and not it being anything political necessarily. It's something more about the group threat and people feeling like their group is, is you know, and we could think about an example, right, like after 9-11, um, when our America felt like we were under assault, that it's a reasonable response then to um, be violent in return. And it isn't just about seeing, um, you know, the towers falling, but it's also the towers falling because some other group is threatening your group.
0: that being said, as Aaron mentioned slightly earlier in this talk, you were discussing media and entertainment and how this can influence views of torture and also the background story of almost how this book came about with um, individuals becoming involved in Hollywood, really. So why don't we talk about that? Because media and entertainment really can, in some ways, affect views of the public. Absolutely.
1: Um, So we think about, you know, terrorism or torture, really, these are not things that most people have any direct experience with at any point in their lives. Um, You know, while we colloquially use the term, oh, it was torture, what we're talking about here is, you know, the actual legal definition of torture. This is not something that I have ever encountered, I'm ever likely to encounter. And that's the case for the vast majority of Americans. So where people get their information about torture is largely from, from media, from entertainment media in particular. And the whole discussion and motivation for this, you know, this book and what it became, came really from the TV show 24, which Um, I assume most listeners are familiar with, but if not, it was a show that first aired shortly after the attack on 9-11 that depicts Jack Bauer, the protagonist played by Kiefer Sutherland, who is racing against the clock, against these ticking time bomb scenarios to save the U.S. from disaster with any means necessary. And he uses torture a ton. Um, I think there was someone went and counted. There's something like 60 torture scenes in the first five seasons. Um, And it's almost always shown as effective. Right. So in the experiments that we did, the first one that Joe mentioned with the student sample, we showed people a clip of torture where it either worked, where it didn't work, or one of the rare interrogations um, from 24 that didn't include torture. And what we found was when people saw torture work, they were more supportive of it. When people saw torture fail, it didn't reduce their support for it. Um, and while whether people saw torture work or not, if they were primed to think about torture, they were more likely to take action vis-a-vis signing a petition that we gave them about torture, which we then sent to Congress along with a copy of our study. When we were presenting the findings um, of this original piece, you know, we got plenty of feedback and some of the questions, one of which Joe alluded to, was, you know, is this about torture specifically or is it about violence generally? Are you just priming people to think about aggression? Another question that came up is whether or not, you know, if we can, if media depictions of torture can push people to be more supportive of the practice, what about media depictions of sort of the alternative to torture, rapport-building interrogations, the things that expert interrogators say are effective? So in a follow-up study, which is another chapter in the book, um, with a national sample, we replicated the first study. So again, showed torture, you know, working, not working. We added an um, an additional condition where it was ambiguous. We had a general violence condition, and then we had conditions where people saw um, a counterterrorism interrogation with rapport building where it either worked or didn't work. We replicated our original findings. So again, people who see torture work are more supportive of it. A little bit surprising to us is that when people saw just the general violence, they were significantly less supportive of torture. And this stumped us a little bit at first, but our best guess is really that, you know, any one of us knows what it feels like to be hit in the face with something on accident or hopefully not on purpose. So there's more empathy with that. You can, you, you can see and you know what that feels like, whereas there isn't empathy with a terrorism suspect because most of us can't see ourselves ever being in that situation. The most surprising and frankly, bothersome finding um, out of this is that when people saw rapport building interrogations regardless of whether they worked or not they were more supportive of torture after the fact um which our best guess there is just that people have been so sort of conditioned to see torture and counterterrorism interrogations that Seeing a rapport building seemed like the interrogators were being quote unquote soft on the terrorists, even though that's the thing that experts say is actually more effective.
2: And, Aaron, I, you might bring up, I think, some of the work that you did on on uh, depictions of torture in other media too. I think that that'd be helpful.
1: Sure, absolutely. So sort of stemming from this um, a colleague of, of Joe of mine, Casey Delante approached me a couple years ago. He's said, okay, so I've read you and Joe's study, but what we really don't know is how frequently torture is depicted in popular media in general. So in what seemed like it would be a really fun research project and turned out watching a bunch of popular movies, for research is less fun than it sounds. We watched the 200 top grossing movies over a decade. So the top 20 movies in each year for 10 years and coded them for um, every time there was a torture scene and then coded some of the dynamics of the scenes themselves. And what we found is that the majority of those popular films, including kids films, depicted torture. When torture was depicted for informational purposes, it was generally shown to be as a, to be effective. And there were some other dynamics about how torture was depicted, what the purpose of it was, depending on whether the person doing the torture was the protagonist or the antagonist. So what this really shows is that you know, torture, not necessarily in the counterterrorism context, but torture is really regularly depicted in entertainment media. Um, in a way that is, you know, often just sort of a almost jokey, um, often unnecessary for plot lines. I mean, there's it was one of the strangest projects that we worked on, and I'll say we actually just uh, finished data collection using clips from popular movies to see if um, if clips where. Torture is depicted as effective in an interrogation, but the interrogations outside of the context of counterterrorism. To see how people interpret that, um, and just premier the sort of preliminarily looking at the results, it seems like people recognize that um, that those are still torture scenes, but they don't seem to have that same effect of pushing support for torture. And perhaps this is because, you know, as Joe alluded to, these aren't in this sort of group threat context. But that's very early on. Uh, more on that in a few months, hopefully.
2: And, and one thing that Aaron was alluding to that I think is important to note here is uh, a lot of these previous studies that looked at similar topics that we're looking at were really concerned about people's attitudes. And in some ways that's you know front and center of what we're talking about, right your attitudes and your support for torture. But we also wanted to examine behaviors. Um, And, you know, it's not clear, you know, as Chelsea, you probably know from studying um, terrorism more broadly, uh, it's not clear how people's attitudes and behaviors are linked. And it's not, um, you know, just a simple linear line that someone has a certain attitude about something is then actually going to, to behave in such a way like you get a certain radicalized viewpoint. Uh, attitude that doesn't necessarily mean you'll be violent. And so one of the things I think uh, that was interesting about our experiments too, is we try to test not only people's attitudes, but get measures of their behaviors um, in in multiple ways. And, you know, interestingly enough, I think torture is this, um, it's this topic that tends to also lead people to want to act. And so it's a critical issue and, and one which I think not a lot of people have information on, but once they get activated, they're, they're pretty willing to act on it.
0: And on that note, what did you find when looking at attitudes and behaviors in relation to your studies? Sure. I mean, so, um,
1: and this is where, you know, some of the methods that we used became a little bit complicated to measure some of this. So the first study where we had participants in person, we can give them hand- copies of petitions, uh, we found that, you know, people who were exposed to torture were more likely to take action. Not necessarily in support of or in opposition to, but they were just more likely to take action and feel the need to do something about, um, you know, about this issue that they had just been primed to think about. Um, We tried replicating that in an online sample with a national, you know, with a national sample of U.S. adults not as many people were willing to sign a petition. In large part, we expect that this is just because that's not the norm on these online research platforms to be to, to give any sort of personal or identifying information. there was just a far sort of um, a far lower rate of people who indicated willingness to, uh, to sign a petition, even though we didn't actually collect any sort of identifying information. One thing that was interesting with that study, though, is that we originally pil- or wait, I'm sorry, we, we originally collected data in the summer of 2014. So this is a point in time where about 10 years past um, the photos of Abu Ghraib being public. Um, Torture is not really something that's front and center in public thought, public discourse. Later that year in December, the you know the so-called ten, uh, senate torture report was released and we ran the exact same study again so basically using this as a what we would what call a natural experiment something in the environment that we had no control over made torture salient in public discourse public thought on the news again so we collected uh data again from a similar but a similar sample but completely different people Um, and what we found is that when torture was more salient in public discourse, people were more likely to say that they would be willing to take action, um, vis-a-vis signing a petition. So it's, you know, these aren't perfect measures of attitudes versus behaviors, but it does give, um, sort of additional, um, evidence to support one of our main findings in the book is that, you know, issue salience really influences what people are willing to do on these issues that people just don't typically think about day in, day
0: out. I wanted to talk about the concept of identity, specifically suspect identity, and also ethnicity, and do these affect support for the use of terrorism? Or excuse me, not terrorism, torture. Excuse me, I'm so used to using the term terrorism in my field. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: so this is something that you know, derived from prior research. We're not the first people who thought, mm, I wonder if race and identity, you know, race and ethnicity, influence. Um, the sort of punishment that people are willing to accept. Um, And largely prior work had found that on the basis of both nationality and race ethnicity, um, that people were more likely to support torture against members of an out group. So people from a different country, people of a different race or ethnicity. In one of our chapters, we tested that again we're, we're priming people to think of the suspect and the interrogator as either being white or as being sort of Middle Eastern or Arab uh, Muslims, sort of the general prime there. Much to our surprise in, those, in that chapter, we didn't really find differences in people's um, support for torture on the basis of the perpetrator and the victim's uh, race, ethnicity. What we did see is that when the, inter- the torture interrogation took place in Afghanistan versus on U.S. soil, people were much more supportive of that in Afghanistan versus here domestically, you know, in the, in the homeland, so to speak. In a later chapter, uh, we thought about identity in a slightly different way. Instead of thinking about this as you know race, ethnicity, um, we included still nationality, but we also included the uh, the identity or ideology of the group that was suspected of perpetrating or perpetrating terrorism or being at, at risk for future perpetration of terrorism. And what we found is that there was um, there were differences in how people how supportive people were of torture, depending on the suspects group membership. So if the, you know, if the um, group membership was, you know, anti um, abortion group. They're less supportive of torturing a member of an anti-abortion group as they would be of you know a member of a neo-Nazi group, for example.
2: And we saw some of this in play recently in in the Capitol Siege, right? There was a lot of discussion in the media as well uh, as on Twitter um, about what people's perceptions of this um, riotous behavior would have been if if most of these folks were black or Arab. Um, how the police might have responded um, similarly or different. Um, I mean, I think that's a factor in in what we found with torture, but also in in how people, uh, as Aaron said before, like how, how people label terrorism, um, or how people perceive the the capital siege.
0: I think that's actually a really important point to make because. As Joe said, there's been a lot going on on social media concerning what happened at the Capitol, what, about a week and a half ago or so now. Um, And I do see a lot of your research, in in a way, transferring to this and this debate. But also, why don't we talk about the concept of accountability when it comes to state violence versus rebel violence? I know this is something that in political violence and terrorism studies, there's a lot of talk about. Um, and I know your research also addressed
1: this. Say, Joe, did you want to take that one?
2: Um, sure, I'll ta- your
1: I- wheelhouse. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give it a, a brief shot first, and then if if, it, if I leave anything out, feel free to, to jump in and tell me I'm wrong. Um, but I, I mean, I think you know if we just think about the basic definition of what the state is, or how we we. Uh, assume um, states operate. In general, people are way more supportive of um, the state using violence, right? That And if we go back to Weber, that the basic definition of the state is the group that monopolizes violence in a given territory. Um, and so I think most people in the United States and, and in other countries as well, accept that the state is going to you know, utilize violence to maintain order in some places. I mean, we could argue that really it's just a, a protection racket, um, as as Charles Tilley and others have argued, um, you know, that that it's sort of one, that the state, any state is one big mafia. But, um, you know, regardless, within the United States, most people, you know, large majorities of people assume that the state is, is legitimate and just in using violence in certain contexts, um, where you know, rebels using violence or non-state actors using violence is generally opposed by most folks. Um, you know, so when the state does things like disappear people, send them to black sites and, um, use violence against them, like our, our research suggests, uh, most people are okay with it, especially if it isn't on U S soil. And especially if they don't have to see it. And it, those people that are being tortured, don't look like them. Um, it's, a it's not a very pleasant finding and, and we don't love it, <laughs> but, uh, I, I think we're, we're pretty confident that that's, that's how a lot of people feel.
1: I think a tagline for our research show is it's not a pleasant finding and we don't love it.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I, I think that's fair. And I, and, and in a lot, a lot of experts that we spoke to, said the same thing in the sense that, you know, they've firsthand seen the state operate in these ways and they've sometimes been the tool of the state and operating in this way and they don't think it works and they don't like it. And yet people want it and people ask for it. And, and that's, you know, that's troubling.
1: I think what was even more sort of troubling on that front is one of the things that we found is about, you know, so who the, who the audience, or sorry, who the, um, who the speaker is who's giving you information about torture. And what our experiments showed is that when the person giving you information about torture is a military interrogator, people are more likely to listen to them. When I relayed that to some of our former military interrogators who we <laughs> interviewed, they are like, yeah, not so much in practice. Um, and a couple of them, you know, uh, Mark Fallon and Steve Kleinman in particular gave a, a couple of examples of times where they you know, would try to convince either an individual or a large audience that in fact, torture doesn't work. And people just seem so sort of primed to believe that it does that they're discounting and even arguing with the experts who actually know firsthand.
2: Yeah. And even I can't remember who said it, but they were arguing with their brother-in-law or their family member. And like, yeah, what do you know about this? Uh, um, And I'm sure you you all probably have a similar experience. But I I tend to not tell other people that I study terrorism and and torture because it tends to have this effect at a party or when when we used to go to parties and talk to other people um, that they would start. Uh, what I like to call Al-Qaeda explaining to me uh, terrorism. And so I, I tried to shy away from trying to, you know, um, persuade folks about appropriate counterterrorism policies per se, because um, I think generally speaking, there's been a real, uh, in the past few years, a real reversion uh, or feelings that experts aren't that useful and it's not, you may not have any specialized knowledge that could be useful to a topic. Um, as much as just my opinions on something.
1: Yes, very, very much that. Um, I typically tell people that I, I, I teach statistics because that does not <laughs> lead to follow-up questions.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, or yeah, I'll say I'm I am a quantitative analyst. And people are like, okay, sure, great, that sounds fun.
0: <laughs> no, but I, I completely agree with both of you that it seems like it's getting harder and harder to have a conversation that's rational. Fresh- especially if you're someone that has studied a topic for years and years, that's your life. And they still are not willing to um, take your knowledge at face value. It's it's kind of sad. Um, And that's also a very frightening finding in your research that um, there is this uh, lack of wanting to believe those that have had firsthand experience with torture and Saying like, hey, this doesn't actually work. Why don't we talk about the concept of fixed and fluid views on torture? I found this really interesting in your book, and I'd love for you to, A, explain it to the audience, and then do a deeper dive into it.
2: Sure. Thank you. Yeah. the uh, One of the things that we found kind of inductively, we found through doing these experiments across different populations at different times and in different spaces, uh, is that some people... Are what what we call fixed um, who when in normal experiments we kind of ask their opinion about something and then we provide them some type of a treatment and then we ask them again to see if that treatment influences their views and so the fixed types we're saying are the ones who answer the first way one way and answer the second way the exact same way they don't change at all depending on whatever stimulus we give them um, where the fluid types we argue, or th- these folks are the ones who, once they're exposed to this new information or this new uh, treatment, they tend to flip or change their minds. Um, and this is this is a kind of a similar terminology that was used in a recent book by um, Hetherington and Weiler, which is pretty fun. It's, I'm, I'm uh, giving it a plug, but it's called Prius versus Pickup, how the answers to four simple questions explain America's great divide. And they talk about fixed and fluid in terms of partisanship. We use it slightly differently to um, and part the, part of the reason we use it differently is they, they tend to put the fixed types among Republicans and the fluid types among Democrats. Um, we don't necessarily find that. What, what we find is that, you know, it, the fixed types are the ones that can't be swayed. They're certain in their choices. They make a decision. We give them stimulus. It's the same decision. The fluid types, they can be persuaded. We can change their minds. Um, and you know, the, the reason this matters is if you're let's say uh, a politician or um, some other group that's trying to persuade someone to change their mind about a topic you're probably wasting your time at trying to advocate with a flu with a fixed type because you know you're you're not likely to change their behavior and we find again in our experiments that about seventy five percent of the folks that that we experiment on what, which seems a little um, maniacal, but the the 75% of folks that take our surveys um, that we can't really change their mind. They're not really persuadable. Well, those are the fixed types. Well, about 25% are able to take in new information and change their beliefs and behaviors. Um, so, but, but contra again, to the, the Hetherington and, and Weiler book, which was, I was talking about before, it doesn't neatly f- go with Republican versus Democrat. In fact, I, I think the Democrats in our, um in our studies were a little bit more fixed. So anyway, the there's definitely more research that needs to be done on this area. I think it's really critical that um we have a sense for the distribution of these fixed and fluid types when we're talking about a particular policy area. Um, you know, that's that's definitely something that that we're interested in kind of moving along on. Um, and you know the um I think when you have a situation where there's a lot of fixed types you're it's very unlikely you're going to get any kind of movement
1: yeah, and one thing just to add on to that, and you know, we did see that uh, Democrats in our studies did tend to be more fixed and more fixed in saying, no, I don't support torture and there's nothing you can do to get me to support torture. Whereas people who were Republican in our surveys tended to have a little bit more sort of wiggle room on this. One thing that was interesting though, is that in um, one of the chapters where we did the conjoint experiment that Joe had mentioned, is we don't have just one outcome variable for each person. Each person saw a bunch of different scenarios and were asked to rate you know, how acceptable they thought torture was across a 10, a dozen or so different scenarios. And there we found that people's internal consistency was much lower. So while when asked only once about 75% of people didn't change pre-test to post-test, when asked to evaluate, a, you know, 10 or 12 different scenarios, it was the reverse. About 75% of people wiggled a little bit from scenario to scenario. So, you know, no, I'm not willing to, you know, to, to use torture against, you know, an anti-abortion group member who's a U.S. citizen when it's not going to be effective. But if it's against a Syrian citizen who's a suspected member of ISIS, and it's likely to be effective. Yeah. Okay. Maybe I can see why, where that would be um, potentially justified. So further addings of complication to this fixed versus flu- fluid discussion is that even with it, there's not sort of internal consistency within many people either, because context matters. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think that goes to the whole question of can we actually change people's views on torture? And, you know, the fixed fluid is very important here. And how do we do this if we can? And how do we use persuasion in this process?
2: So I think it's a good news, bad news scenario. <laughs> so I'll, I'll try That's and <laughs> uh, I'll try not to be a complete Debbie Downer, um, but uh, I think we can change some people's views some of the time. That's kind of the good news. Um, like I was saying, I think of those fluid types that we can change their views sometimes um, depending as Aaron was saying on context as well. So we identify fluid types we give them accurate information from trusted sources like like interrogators or, and experts and what have you. And we might be able to change people's views on, on something like torture. Um, the bad news, I think, is that it's not all that useful with fixed types. You're probably not going to persuade them. And, and work by Brendan Nyan at Dartmouth, in fact, has shown that fixed types may actually double down and harden their beliefs. So it's not only a waste of time to probably try and persuade a fixed type, but it may actually be counterproductive. Um, and if you've ever tried to persuade a family member, it's something I do regularly, not to support the president, um, that you can find that they'll just double down on it um and so you know it can be quite counterproductive um and then the i guess the worst news so i've given you good news i give you bad news and here's the worst news um and this came out of some of our interviews too with um the experts which is that the exact time where we need to be able to persuade someone is actually the time when it's not going to ever happen so when we're under threat this is the time where that evolutionary mechanism that we were describing kind of kicks in. And so even fluid types might be persuaded, but they're persuaded to violence. And so, um, you know, just to give you an example, right? Like if we were having debates about torture on September 10th, 2001, we might be able to persuade some folks, but on September 12th, you're going to see huge increases in support for torture coming probably from the fluid types and the fixed types, you know, sticking with torture. So, um, you know, we should be having uh, these conversations right now when we're not necessarily under great international threat, although we could argue about domestic threats. Um, but this is the exact time to be having these conversations because this is the time when people are probably persuadable. But um, the bad news is most of the time we have these conversations under under threat.
0: Aaron, do you have anything to add to that? No, I think Joe really covered that pretty well.
2: Thanks, Aaron. <laughs>
0: nope. a, dog, a dog appearance I love that <laughs> so I mean the big question also is based on your research when it comes to the policy world what kind of recommendations can you provide to policymakers on this really important topic so we've thought about this a lot and I think that
1: being perhaps a little bit more of a pessimist sometimes and I'm tempted to say that there's just nothing that we can do and I don't know that that's necessarily the case right so one of the biggest issues that we have in this context is that so much of people's views come from entertainment media. And it is not our place to try to you know, constrain the media or suggest that the media should be constrained in what they depict, how they depict torture. Um, there have been you know, numerous conversations with producers in Hollywood trying to get them to show torture not working as, you know, as much, not to depict it as much. And those typically have you know, tended to fall on deaf ears. Um, so that's problematic. And it's problematic, not just from a, oh, it's entertain you know, it's, it's entertainment influences views. But also you look at something like 24 and, you know, the late Senator John McCain, who himself was a victim of torture, who was a firm, ardent opponent of torture throughout his life, was also a fan of the TV show 24. I believe he actually had a cameo on the show at one point. And it's easy to sort of think, oh, it's just it's just entertainment. This doesn't influence people's views. Um, but really, as Joe had said, you know, thinking about and discussing these issues when we aren't under, you know, threat when we can make decisions in less rash or sorry, more rational, less emotional ways. Um, and at the same time, I mean, we've signed prohibitions against torture. So actually, upholding those and punishing violators, you know, is a good way to try to protect against the slippery slope of using torture or so-called enhanced interrogations in the future.
0: Joe, any any thoughts?
2: No, Erin said it well.
0: Fantastic. <laughs> well, here at the Loopcast when time permits, we like to provide our guests with either a moment to touch on something that we haven't touched on on the top talk, excuse me, or Final thoughts about the topic, so I want to hand the floor over to both of you for that.
1: Sure, I'll go first. Um, So, I mean, some of my final thoughts about this topic is that I think it is really something that is still quite understudied. Um, And there's, you know, as as we've conducted each successive experiment or each successive study here. They tend to bring up more questions than they provide answers. Um, and this is something that, you know, at least as a criminologist, um, some of the you know, times that I have tried to publish work with on torture, some of the pushback has been like, well, what does this have to do with criminology? And I'm like, well, criminology is, you know, the study of law breaking and reaction to law breaking, torture is arguably both of those, but it's still seen as sort of tangential to, to my discipline. Um, I think that there's a lot of information that could be brought to bear, you know, from criminology writ large on looking at you know, views of death penalty, views of other sort of, you know, harsher state punishment um, or interrogation practices, and seeing where there's, you know, what what do we know from other related areas of research that can be brought to bear here, and how can that influence policy and practice as well?
2: Yeah, and I, I think one of the real difficult things about studying all the things that that we study is they're inherently emotional, right? Um, Whether we're talking about torture or terrorism uh, and there is need to have a more sober evidence-based evidence-backed canon that can inform and help structure debates, you know, and we consciously in the book try and avoid Getting into moral discussions, and I, I mean, I, I can't speak for Aaron, but I know I'm I'm morally committed to not wanting folks to torture. But I I recognize that in the book we don't really say like this is a you know advocacy book. More we did experiments. We try to, to um, do uh, scripted interviews so that uh, you know we're taking our own biases out of the book um, and and letting the data and the evidence speak for itself. Um, And that's that's a really hard thing to do in this space because because uh, everything we've been talking about for the past, you know, 45 minutes uh, of just this is an emotional issue and and people feel strongly uh, in this space. And so, you know, I I hope that there'll be future work that also um, is more evidence based and uh, to 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 say things that uh, need to be said and are supported by the evidence.
0: Well, I want to thank you both so much for coming on the show. It's fantastic having you on to talk about this book, which is really great. And it's eye-opening as well. So I really encourage people to read it. It's called Tortured Logic, Why Some Americans Support the Use of Torture in Counterterrorism. And thank you just so much to both of you for coming on the Loopcast. Thanks so much for having us, Chelsea.
2: Thank you, Chelsea. We really enjoyed it.